0: friends, and Welcome to a special episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random-knit rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids for our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and today we're doing something a little bit different. Today we are looking back at our previous 13 episodes and highlighting some of our favorite moments from the past few months. But before we get into that, we really wanted to reflect on how much Go Ask Alice has meant to us. For me personally, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into when Lindsay first asked me to be part of the show. Um, I had previously been asked to be on podcasts and things from other people, and those sort of projects never never came to fruition or never really got off the ground ever. And so when Lindsay first asked me to be part of the show, I was just like, yeah, this is probably not going to happen, but you know, I'll, I'll entertain the idea, of course, because she's one of my closest friends. And so when she first told me that <laughs> we were doing a podcast with someone from you know, someone she met two years ago at a conference. I was like, great, this is definitely not going off the ground. And then she told me that she lives in Melbourne, Australia. And I'm like, great, this is really, really not getting off the ground. But then, you know, we had a group chat that, that got established and we met on Discord. And it just, you know, it started to really materialize in a way that I just wasn't expecting at all. And all of a sudden it started to feel a lot more real until... Soon enough, we had a podcast and we had episodes out and we were, you know, producing weekly content. And that was just like so surprising to me that we had actually done this. And um, I think another thing that was very surprising to me was just the fact that I got so close to to my two co-hosts, Lindsay and Sarah, of course. And Lindsay and I had always been been close since college because, you know, college was a great time. But Sarah, you know, Sarah, I would have never met outside of just doing this podcast. So when we met on Discord, it was just, it was just incredible because she vibes so well with Lindsay and I, and she really just, um, she really was just great. And she laughed at all the stupid shit that I say. So, you know, she gets an A in my book because of that, because, you know, not many people laugh at the stupid shit I say. Anyway, regardless, it was just super nice to meet both of them, not meet both of them, but, you know, it was just super nice to to have a podcast with both of them and just get so much closer to them because, you know, I just, I can't imagine my life without them at this point. It just like, they're so ingrained into my life that it's, it's just, I don't know what I would do without them. And uh, another part that I really didn't realize was just how much passion and how much energy I would put into the show. Um, I mean, it, <laughs> when it's my turn to edit, it's not, oh man, I have to edit. It's like, oh man, I get to edit. It's like a, a, an excitement behind just like working on the show and, and it's and it's an excitement every single time we get to record every week and it's an excitement when I find an article that I really love and want to share with them. It's just, it's super great that we're able to do this every week and, you know, we've had some hiatuses and, and all that, but it just it's it's been just a a great time for all of us and i just absolutely love it and i can't imagine my life without the podcast right now and i think it's absolutely helped me helped keep me sane during these these months of uh you know isolation with covid but you know i just absolutely really love it and i think the whole cherry on top of this whole situation has been that people are actually listening to our podcast and i know you're probably going to hear this from all of us but it's just it's so incredible that we have people around the world who listen to us and i just think that's the the coolest thing in the world that you know we have an audience and um, I was just expecting our parents to be the only people who listen to the podcast, but it was, it's actually more than that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's surprising to us. And we were like, holy crap, we actually have an audience. And I think this whole, this whole process has been just like made even sweeter by the fact that we have an audience and I have all of you to thank for that. And I think that's just, you know, the, the most incredible part about this whole experience has been that, you know what we're producing and what we're putting so much effort into has, has actually been listened to. And and it's, it's actually a, a, you know, a decently good show at the end of the day. I mean, uh, speaking from someone who's actually making the show, you know, I'm a little biased at this point, but um, I actually think it's a a decent show and, and I really love producing it and I really love being on it and I really love my two co-hosts. So, You know at the end of the day i think this is just one of one of my favorite things that i get to do and so yeah that's that's really what go ask alice means to me it's it's just means an absolute ton to me and and i really just love being able to do the show and i hope to continue to do it in the future so yeah that's go ask alice in a nutshell so without further ado i'd like to introduce you to my favorite moment from the past 13 episodes of our podcast And this comes from episode 11, Ask Alice About Ancient Witches on Life Support. And my favorite moment has to be just the whole discovery of witchcraft section that Lindsay brought to us. And I absolutely loved it. And it just had, (laughs) it was just this book about terrible magic tricks that were just like that, like, in one part I just say this is witchcraft this sucks (laughs) it was just so funny but I think my absolute favorite moment just from that was when Sarah said I don't think any of this would fool me it just I die of laughter every single time I hear that so yeah that's that's this clip that's from episode 11 ask Alice about ancient witches on life support
1: who's to say maybe you (laughs) skipped to this point by chance um But good news, because you are coming upon the discovery of witchcraft, which is, that is the book, that is the book that I landed on, Um, taking a page out of Sarah's book, which I wish I chose a different phrase, because now that's just confusing. Um,
0: Book and book. Book book and book.
1: The uh, the actual spelling of this is Old English. So if you were to read it very literally, it would be the discovery of witchcraft.
2: <laughs> oh, I love Old English so much.
1: Um, I will introduce the book's author. His name is Reginald Scott. He was an Englishman and uh, he decided to put this book together because he was fed up by street charlatans <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I keep getting tricked.
2: (laughs) He's so sick of, he's sick of kids on his lawn, basically. Yeah,
1: he was like, (laughs) everyone's having too much fun in Renaissance medieval times. And I'm going to fuck it up. Without further ado, I would like to teach you some magic tricks. Yes, please. Okay. So the (laughs) title of... (laughs) What do I want to say? Ah. To Eat... A knife and to fetch it out of any other place. (laughs) (laughs) So what you would first do is you would take a knife and you would contain it. That's the words he used. Contain the knife within two of your hands. So what you would do is as if you were holding like a microphone or, um, you know, even like a cup with two hands. You would do that with the knife and with the point facing you and you would put the <clears throat> knife basically right between your teeth and chomp on it so that you make a noise. Oh. Okay. Oh. So you, no that I've got sensitive teeth. Ooh. You want to trip but Sarah you got you got to make sacrifices right you now. You got to commit to the Sarah. bit. Sarah. Yep. You're, we're commit we are going to we are going to fetch this out of any place. So you got to <laughs> you got to be ready.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm ready. I'm
1: ready. <laughs> so you bite bite down on the tip of the knife and oh, you it. make it seem like you are pantomiming that you are pushing it into your mouth but really both hands are covering the rest of the knife and then because you're trying so hard you go oh my god can some am send for a drink please <laughs> this is so difficult i'm having a very hard time I need some lubrication and when's and s- yes this is really, it's no, it's no easy thing eating a knife. So please fetch me some water. <laughs> so when somebody goes to fetch you water, you take your hands down. Presumably you're sitting at a table. You bring your hands down. When you bring your hands down, drop the knife in your lap.
2: Wow. This only works under okay. super specific circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not done. We're going to seal
1: the deal right now. I'm not, I'm not done. Oh, so then when the, when the person comes back, you drink the water and you're like, thank you so much. Maybe you like, like lean over and sip. Then you bring your hands back up to your mouth. You know, the knife isn't there, but they think the knife is still there. And then as you pull, pull your imaginary knife towards your face again, you bite down on your fingertip or sorry, on your, on your nail. I'm so sorry. You bite down on the
2: edge of your nail and then you pretend to shove it into your mouth. (laughs) Yeah, it seems, seems flawed, but I'm, I don't think it would fool me. Like, if this is on Penn & Teller, I think they would. It would not Sarah,
1: fool I probably should have said this first. Absolutely nothing from medieval times is going to fool you. <laughs> if you're looking to be fooled by anything, I, I will also note that I am teaching you how to do the fooling. <laughs> so, So just hearing how the magic trick works and saying that wouldn't fool
2: me. Well, correct, because... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying, just like uh, picturing picturing a person do this. Look, it's um, it, I'm astounded that people thought it was. You real. play D and D, you know that there's a
0: charisma modifier,
2: like yeah, 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 yeah. They they had like plus seven to their charisma, didn't they?
0: Yes, that's my absolute favorite clip. I think it's the funniest thing when Sarah says, like, I don't think this would fool me. And Lindsay's just like, yeah, of course it wouldn't because I'm teaching how to do the trick and also it's medieval times. So, you know, like what they ha- what's, what's going to fool them is not going to fool you. So I just found that very, very funny and I absolutely just love that moment. So uh, the next moment that I'm bringing up is the most entertaining topic to me, which came from episode nine, which is Ask Alice About Nobel Laureate Moles Lost at Sea. And this has to be the topic of foghorns, which I absolutely loved because it was just so funny. Like a foghorn just seems so like, yeah, of course you're just going to use a horn, but just the the creations that they made to before a foghorn was invented was just so funny, and I absolutely loved it. So this is episode nine, um, Ask Alice About Nobel Laureate Moles Lost at Sea.
1: If you just never really thought that hard about boats like me <laughs> um in the fog it's very hard to see uh, light mm-hmm. of course so um a lighthouse is not going to be very helpful in telling you when you are close to land aka danger if you're traveling at a high speed so foghorns were important as a way of penetrating the fog to let boats uh know like hey this is where the port is or you should come this way
2: Mm, it's like okay. a little siren um, siren sound to help direct them. Exactly. Yeah,
1: like siren is in like the ancient Greek siren. Yes, right? like, yes, yes.
2: Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I got you. It was very poetic. <laughs> but the first fog signals were actually developed in Europe in the 1700s. It's a relatively new invention. Wow.
0: <laughs> relatively.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't stop laughing at the thought of this with the first, the first fog signal um, especially so it's 1700s the first one implemented in Boston was in 1719 <laughs> it was just a
0: cannon <laughs> <laughs> just, oh my just imagine
1: God. like oh there's fog <laughs> boom <laughs> funny to me is that if there's fog like no one can fucking see anything so you're just blindly firing a cannon like into (laughs) (laughs) anyway so so the way this would go day to day is that lighthouse keepers when it was really foggy like you can't just shoot off one cannon and be like oh everybody knows there's fog here And everyone knows where the port is. Like, no, you need to continuously shoot off cannons to let ships know that it is still foggy and we are still here. So so lighthouse keepers for fucking days would shoot off cannons repeatedly from the lighthouse. And so another idea that...
0: Go on.
1: Another idea that they came up with was a giant metal triangle. (laughs) Four foot long, so longer than a meter, Sarah, on every end of the triangle. (laughs) (laughs) this job fucking sucks this was in 1837 in maine they were like how about a giant triangle triangle. and he goes what if we fucking took a clarinet body and a trumpet head and then we put fire and gravity in it (laughs) 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 what if we just made a really big, annoying clarinet. (laughs) 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 Like also of all the instruments, right? Like who's like clarinet's going to save the day. Yeah. Clarinet. I'll do an apology corner for clarinet players later. (laughs) (laughs) But the, so Debole comes along, Debole, I'm going to say it differently every time, comes along and uh, he comes up with a coal fired engine that compresses air and pushes it through this this clarinet trumpet. Like, there's a giant metal reed in it. And that's wow. where we kind of get the first, like, real horn. This is now in 1860. This, so we are not yet at the boo. Like, that hasn't <laughs> been invented yet. Like, we had to develop that. Okay, these are, like, the fucked up attempts along the way. So this is the most dramatic thing I have read. It's about the clarinet. It had, quote, A screech like an army of panthers, weird and (laughs) prolonged, gradually lowering in note until after half a minute, it becomes the roar of a thousand mad bulls with intermediate voices of suggestive of the wail of a lost soul, the moan of a bottomless pit and the groan of a disabled elevator.
0: (laughs) I really love this topic. It was just so funny to me, just how non-linear the progression was from you know these these different devices to a foghorn, where it felt like a, a foghorn was just so simple and it should just be you know that's what you use. But you know all these different inventions were just <laughs> were just so funny. So I absolutely love that clip, and I think that that whole that whole topic was just great. So the most surprising topic for me uh, comes from episode 12, which is Ask Alice About Protecting Alien Punctuation Against Centaurs, which contained the section about planetary protection. And I thought originally that planetary protection would be, you know, protecting, uh, like how to protect us from catastrophic events that would destroy our world. But it was actually about protecting other planets from our, you know, our bio-life forms. And so I just found that so interesting and just so cool that we actually had these plans in place that said well this is how we protect all these other planets from us and I just thought that was absolutely incredible and I love this topic so that's again episode 12 ask Alice about protecting alien punctuation against centaurs
2: alrighty um are you guys ready to talk about possible wipeout events for our planet
0: Aww. yes 100% I, I'm so into it
2: yeah Lindsay's less into it you don't want to die <laughs> what big girl doesn't
0: want to die
2: (laughs) yeah and so i landed on planetary protection thinking it was going to be about how to protect our planet from like aliens or asteroids or you know um did not read the first sentence that says not to be confused with planetary defense
1: Which is precisely Uh, what you proceeded to do. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So I missed that because I wanted to scroll down to the history and I started reading the history and realised I was on the very wrong page. Um, But it was still very fascinating. So I'm going to give you some planetary protection and some planetary defence if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Yes, please. It's actually <laughs> oh. about protecting other planets from us because we we are the issue. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> oh, I like this.
2: Um, so it's uh mainly at, at the other planets that we share the solar system with. So you know, like Mars, Jupiter, Venus, all, all of those good ones. Uh chuck in Uranus for some giggles. Um <clears throat> But yeah, so it's protecting them from us when we try to explore them because our our earth is manky with all sorts of organisms and germs and viruses and and all of this like we're we're steaming with life here like we have so much life which is great for earth not great though if you're taking it to an alien planet or um a planet where we don't know the full um spectrum of what is alive there so we don't we haven't found life outside of earth yet but just say if mars did have very delicate single-celled organisms we wouldn't want to completely wipe them out with a virus or with a, a microorganism that we've accidentally sent on one of our spaceships there. so uh what i found really interesting was not all places in the solar system are treated equally which why would why would they be? Humans, we have trouble with the idea of equity and equality equality, which I like to think our generation is highly working on. Um but yeah, it turns out that some places you go in the solar system, eh, less less important to keep clean. Wow. Which I thought was really hmm. fascinating. So there's yeah. Different, yeah, different categories of um like recommendations for how clean and sterilized anything you send could be and so I'll I'll give you some category examples so there's there's technically four or five five we haven't gotten to yet but in the future we could get there oh. yeah exactly right And so this is where we get to category four, which is probably the most um, important. And so this is um, landers or probe missions to the same locations as category three. So places of interest like that include uh, Mars and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and some asteroids as well. Um, And so this is, one of the highest ones with Category 4 because you want to be able to sterilize the entire spacecraft and landers uh, before actually packing them up and sending them over. So you need to have a really low probability that any of the microorganisms that are left on these uh, would interact with, with your investigations on the surface or could negatively in fact, uh, impact any indigenous organisms that are on the surface of this planet or moon that you're going to. Which is really tricky to try plan for and and that hopefully in our lifetimes we will see humans bringing back uh mars rock samples or mars dirt samples which will be really really cool we've already had some asteroid sample um bought back as well last year some sample landed uh, in australia in its closed little sterilized box um, and is hopefully being analyzed right now which is crazy crazy cool um but yeah something that i didn't Fully consider was really, really important.
1: Yeah. So, do they just like in the rover just put like six Ziploc bags on top of each other? <laughs> <Six> <laughs> bags. I think, yeah, basically the
0: engineering equivalent to a good Ziploc bag. So, yeah, those are my favorite clips and those are my favorite moments and just, you know, the most surprising topics for me. And I absolutely love. All of them, and I I can't wait to have many more of these in the future. So up next is Lindsay.
1: So Sarah had this really nice idea that we should all reflect on each of our sections, I guess, or what the year has meant to us, and I guess this is a golden opportunity because... Uh, this is our first year of doing the podcast and it's been like nothing short of unprecedented absolutely at first my original goal was just to put my voice in some part of the planet that i've never been and probably never will go um just because i'm not you know a multimillionaire and that's already happened it, like over and over again and i just can't express how delightful that feels um just it, and incredibly humbling to think that somebody some perfect stranger has, has listened to me talk. So if you're listening now, hello and I love you and I can't wait to meet you one day. Um just <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um I guess fitting in the theme of of the prompt that Sarah has given us to kind of reflect I thought long and hard about like what I wanted to say about what the podcast has been um through this you know, time capsule of an episode. And I feel like such a jackass saying, oh, I just decided to like start a podcast with my friends through the pandemic. Like, LOL, like that. I feel like hipster trash when I say things like that. And I didn't really think that anybody was going to listen to to any of this. So again, like, thank you. And when I say follow us on Twitter, I mean, like, come hang out with me because I can't believe you're real, you know? But I think that overall, it's been this weirdly um, therapeutic like practice in a way that as an academic, you are forced to, really commercialize yourself in in every way possible or reduce yourself to this one-dimensional being that just sells whatever it is that you're studying. And so in some kind of roundabout way, this whole exercise was a a rebellion against academia because for the first time and as long as I could remember, I wanted to do something that I was not going to put on my CV or I wanted to be something or think about something that is just not my job. And uh. We, you have the whole fucking internet in front of you. You can ask any question you want to ask and get it answered. And so that's kind of where the idea sort of came from for the, for the show and just to kind of meander and have fun. Like, I don't think that it's any accident that we all end up on topics that are just very central to us as people. It's been um, on many levels, a sort of looking glass or a sort of a mirror effect. So I've honestly learned about myself looking at the list of things that I've Wandered upon or found really, really interesting. Um, I think that it's also been a really odd exercise in outrunning the bear. You know, I think that a lot of us do the things we do because we feel like there is like a fucking bear chasing us and we, you know, can't rest. It, that means you, you fall under the wheel or, you know, you fall prey to the bear, I guess. And for a long time, I was feeling really burned out with work and with my job. And, um, because being a grad student is pretty rough. And the pandemic itself forced me in a position that I felt like I had to lay down and get eaten. Like, I, what if you could never see your family and all of your friends left you? And, you know, even your job just like failed you. Like all of that felt like it happened all at once. I became extremely disillusioned with what I was studying. I couldn't see any of my family. Like, you know, couldn't, I, I know that we all feel this way, right? Lost all my friends. And it took me a long time to realize I'm actually okay. And things are actually fine. And from there, it was this immense empowerment to realize like, Hey, even in the worst case scenario, I've still got me, and I'm still having fun, and I can still find my way through whatever it is I want to do. And it's kind of like reborn from the ashes of just isolation. I can color the whole world the way that that I want it to be, and so thank you for for being a part of that world that I've colored, I guess, and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. So thank you for being a part of this grand experiment. And without further ado, I'd like to show you all of my favorite parts of what I've gotten to color over the last few months. So let's kick things off with with a really high note. The funniest moment of this entire year of podcasting was undoubtedly when Sarah was trying to guess what different mythical beasts are made of. And like at the time, I was like, painfully aware of how long we were taking to record. I didn't know how long the episode was going to be. So at the time I was very serious, like trying to keep us on track. And when I went back and listened to it, I was crying tears of laughter. Like hands down, that has been the moment where I'm like, if you listen to anything from this podcast, just please listen to these few minutes where Sarah makes the most fucked up creations I can possibly think of enjoy this moment from episode 12 ask alice about protecting alien punctuation against centaurs so to warm us up to warm up our imagination i wrote down some hybrid beasts that i could remember um, and things that i stole from the article so a little game that we're going to play is i'm going to say a hybridized beast and you guys are going to tell me what ingredients make it up
0: yes i like this okay
1: okay so let's start off easy uh what are the ingredients of a mermaid?
0: Fish uh, and human. human and
1: fish. Yeah, yes, 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 ding ding. Both ding, of ding, you. Ding. Yes. What what are the ingredients of a centaur? Horse and human.
0: Yes, horse human. Nice!
1: Ding ding ding. <clears throat> what are the ingredients of a griffin? Uh Phoenix
2: and Fox? Bird, bear. <laughs> I don't yeah. know.
0: Eagle and eagle and something. It's an eagle. God, it's kind
1: it's of buff. A gorilla. No, it's
0: more it's it's like. <laughs> what 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 eagle and gorilla have you seen? <laughs> That's why we have a
1: content warning because Sarah was gonna make us imagine an eagle and a gorilla.
2: <laughs> well, I'm gonna be honest. I thought Griffins. Um... <laughs> I thought they were real. <laughs> but I thought
0: they were real. <laughs> phoenix. Phoenixes definitely aren't real.
1: Yeah, well, you said a, the first ingredient. A... The first ingredient phoenix. you said was a phoenix. He's...
2: I thought a phoenix was based off a real bird. Like, obviously, they don't come back from the ashes like Harry Potter, but I thought they were based off a real bird. I don't know my birds. I am I not an augurist. Might... <laughs> okay,
1: well, <laughs> I mean, they, I'm pretty sure, that, pretty sure that they're, like, made of fire whenever they feel like it. Anyway, no. A um... griffin is an eagle and a lion.
0: Oh, a lion. That's what I was and thinking. And you laughed oh. at gorilla. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Don't even care them. not right.
1: <laughs> so here's the real challenge. What are the ingredients of a chimera?
2: I know that it's a telescope. There's a chimera array. No. And that's all I've got <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Uh-uh. <laughs>
1: There, there are three animals. Can you describe? No, because then I would tell you the animals.
0: Why do I feel like it's got? A, well, does it have scorpion in it? Or am my way off?
1: No, you're along the right. No, you're along the right track. It's got a weird tail and it's got two heads. So I can that. Okay, sorry, Sarah. I can give you some hints. I or you can okay. describe it. It's got, it's got three heads. One of them is its tail. Oh.
0: It's a snake tail. Yep,
1: yeah, snake
0: butt. Snake butt. And it's got... Yes. Why do I feel like it's got a lion head?
1: Yeah, the
2: lion is one and of them.
0: it's got... It's definitely not bear. It's something different.
2: Is um, it on the body of, of a different animal? So it's like snake tail, lion head, and then a different body?
0: It's got a second Ooh, head, though. That's
2: actually a... Th-
1: it's, no, but that, that's a tough question, Sarah. It has. I might as well give you the answer. It has the body of a lion, the head of a lion, the udders of a goat. Oh, shit. A goat head <laughs> and a snake tail. So the, the third one was a goat. I, that, that was a hard one.
2: That is hard. Oh, another one I
1: wrote down was Harpy. Who thought of that? The ancient Greeks, I guess.
0: <laughs> Harpy's a bird and a lady.
1: So, obviously, the whole premise of the show is to learn something new. And when every episode is an opportunity to learn something new, um, it's very hard to look back and try to figure out for myself what was the most entertaining or exciting topic that we ever talked about because they all left an impression on me. But I think that if I really had to choose which one like fucked me up so bad that I was thinking about it days later in the shower, that would definitely be the time that Sarah was talking about Lazarus Taxon all the way back in episode five, Ask Alice About Rising Your Drunk Genius from the Dead. Because how do you lose like like a whole species? Like, did you check everywhere? And then, like, when you find it again and it's, like, a tree that hasn't moved, like, I don't know. Just this one, this one really stuck with me. So I hope it sticks with you, too.
2: Okay. Are you guys ready to learn about Lazarus Taxon? Yes, Yes, please. So in paleontology, a Lazarus taxon um, is, uh, so a taxon, so like either a species or an organism that disappears for one or more periods from the fossil record, but then reappears (gasps) later. So it's something that looks like it has either gone extinct or have has been completely wiped out from the record so um, most likely was extinct but then they find it either in later fossil records or living in real time which is really really cool oh my god Um, what i found was really fascinating is that basically so this lazarus taxa or this this phenomenon that we see is completely an observational artifact and so for this the this artifacts, so this observational artifact occur- occurs because of the way that fossils have been uh, either preserved or are found and then studied. Because when you think about it so fossils, we only get to look at very specific areas of the world when, when we go fossil hunting um, or when we take big core samples. It's not like we're able to sample every patch, so it's quite sporadic. Uh, conversely, on the other side, back when these things were existing before becoming fossilized not everything gets fossilized so you have to exist in a very or we have to die basically in a very unique circumstance with the right type of um, floor bedding under you the right type of environment to be able to become a fossil uh-huh.
1: that's that's fascinating so are mm. there examples of how <laughs>
2: this has happened before Yes, I'm so glad you asked. I have have three examples of my favorites that I really liked. Um, So we're going to start with the Leo Tang rock rat. (laughs) Which if you say that three times fast, it turns into gibberish. (laughs) So he's really cute. I'm going to send you a link to him because I clicked on him because he's pretty dang cute
0: chubbier oh, he's man. got a bushy tail oh. isn't
2: he cute yeah. <laughs> he's a happy little guy He looks
1: like a like a really
2: tough chinchilla <sighs> but until very recently they they were thought to have gone extinct about 11 million years ago and that's where they kind of drop out of the fossil record they're not seen anymore so we just assumed they were extinct and then fast forward to 1996 uh someone discovered a living one of these and was like oh he looks very similar to this fossil and it wasn't until they did a full analysis that they're like oh he is this fossil and <gasps> so he was kind of like brought back from this dead which i thought was really really cool um and so my next one is not as cute because it's a tree um but it, this is something called uh the woolamai pine um, and I, I was really interested in this because it, it was from here in australia so uh, it was found in, uh, in a few different fossil records. Um, and so they thought that this was a type of pine tree that had completely gone extinct. They'd never observed it in the wild in the extensive um, like research they were doing into Australia's rainforest. Um, they'd never seen it in the wild. Uh, and then again, it wasn't until the late 90s or sorry, mid 90s. So it was 1994 that someone discovered a very similar type of plant in this uh, rainforest. Um, And so when they went investigating, they realised that this plant was growing right next to the original Wollemar pine. Um, So I've got one more example of a true, like, Lazarus uh, taxa. So this was found in fossil records and then rediscovered living. Um, And this is called a bush dog and these are found in Central and South America. Look at that (gasps)
0: little face and the little (laughs) tail.
2: (laughs) So yeah, thought to have gone extinct and thought to have been one of the, like the ancient relatives of modern day doggos that we have, um, until in 1843, one of these um, researchers identified him again, but they didn't realize it was exactly the same thing. So they kind of, they put it down to a different uh, species and uh, same genome, but different species. Um, And then a few years later, they, they realized in the 20th century, so you know 50 50 or so years later that this was actually the exact same taxa as the original fossilization
1: so as you guys know or probably know by now once we start recording, like that is the real impression that we are getting of each other's findings for the week. So we never know what one another is about to present before the show. We will sometimes text each other throughout the week and be like, "Oh, I can't wait to show you this like fucked up thing I found" or whatever, um, or just you know giggle maniacally in in the group chat or something. So. When we are surprised by one another's topics, it is genuine. And I have to say that for me, the most surprising and unanticipated topic was back when Drew talked about uh, the Domesday or Doomsday book, because it was nothing that I was expecting. So back in episode 10, that was Ask Alice About Socrates and the Fortune of Doom. Enjoy. I'm going to let you guess.
0: What's in the Doomsday book? What do you think is in the Doomsday book?
2: Is it a census of England, basically?
0: Yeah, ruined the joke.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna guess.
0: <laughs> no, no, conducted. do it, do
2: it. You practiced your well, actually. I know, I know, you did. Do it. Go on.
0: Well, actually, <laughs> Doomsday <laughs> Book. <laughs> I can hear you taking off your glasses. So, the Doomsday Book is the recorded manuscript of the Great Survey, um, in which William the or William the Conqueror requested a survey of every shire in England and Wales. So the interesting part, the interesting part to me about the Doomsday book was that the estimations were, were and I quote from Wikipedia, dispositive and without appeal. So, what does that mean? <laughs> so dispositive means that basically if they say you live in this area, you live there. And without appeal <laughs> being, you, if, you, if they say you, like, you live there, you live there. And if they say this is how much you're going to be taxed, you have no recourse against that. It's like oh God, that's how man. much you're going to be taxed.
1: Well, so wait, so could you could you write down like people's names you hated? <laughs> no, in I'm a just... high attack area.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what I found very interesting is doom didn't have any sort of negative connotation back then. In in middle English it had no negative connotation. It was purely just judgment, hence doomsday uh-huh. being the day of judgment. And so Oh
1: shit.
0: So we have, in modern English, applied this sort of negative connotation to doom, but, but doom back then did not mean what it means now. So it just purely is just judgment. Wow. And so he sent out his, his forces to go survey all of England and Wales to really figure out how he could tax the shit out of it. And yep. so that was the first census. <laughs> <laughs> so this was conducted in 1086. And so no survey of this magnitude was conducted until 1873. So it took it took a quite a long time before, you know, anyone even thought about doing this again. They're just like that was that was a lot. So <laughs> well, that, that was a sucked. lot. That sucked. Let's not, that. not do that again. The census sucks. So, did
2: you say like eight hundred years later?
0: Basically, yes.
2: They're like, uh, I wow. guess guess we should see what's up.
0: It was uh, and it was literally called the modern doomsday. So no way. <laughs> that is so yep. Cool. I wonder
1: for how many generations that held up. Um,
0: well, I have an answer for you because it was used in 2010. <laughs> no. Oh yes, my it was used gosh. in 2010 to help a dispute in sporting rights, deer and fox hunting, and used in 2019 to help a dispute in financial markets.
2: Are you
1: serious? So, wow. so even
0: today, the Doomsday Book is involved to settle land rights. So, the composition of the of the Doomsday Book was the Little Doomsday and the Great Doomsday. <laughs> just the little doomsday so the little doomsday itself was actually um much smaller in scale and so it it only uh surveyed a very small area or very few areas i should say and um but was very very detailed about the survey and so they like they got specifically how many heads of cattle there were and you know all this like extraneous information about people
2: was there someone literally counting sheep
0: Yeah, probably. (laughs) Wow. And so they had all this like ridiculous information about a very small area. And then the Great Doomsday, they kind of realized, well, shit, we can't do that again because that sucked. And so (laughs) they they recorded um, the rest of the areas that were not touched in the Little Doomsday and did it in much...
1: Like broader strokes. Yes.
0: Yeah, much less detail. That's the word I'm looking for.
1: Okay.
0: Um, They recorded it in much less detail. It is on the internet right now. It is 100 percent on the internet right now. You can look up the doomsday right now. Oh my god! The article. So yeah, I saw I saw a few of the pages, and they just like they're just like tons of writing. It wasn't. I... <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't super interesting. Like it wasn't a like an art book or anything. It wasn't like you know those fancy. I know. I know. I just they're just like.
1: You... <laughs> I love that you clicked on a book and you're like, there's tons of writing in here.
0: <laughs> no. I meant it wasn't like a fancy art book. (laughs) There's a bunch of of words in this book. Come on. (laughs) Hello, Drew again. Uh, I'm editing this episode, so I'm back. I'm back to talk to you some more. Um, But I absolutely love these clips, and I think Lindsay did a great job picking them out. And I, you know, I'm a little jealous about a few of them that I didn't get to pick them. But anyway. Uh, They're pretty great. And I think Sarah did a great job, too. So up next is Sarah, of course.
2: Well, hello, everyone. It is Sarah here, ready to dive into all of my favorite parts from this year's Go Ask Alice. It has been a crazy wild ride considering that I messaged Lindsay out of the blue after two years of not speaking to each other. Just because we we met briefly at a conference, we got on like wildfire and then we, we got on with our lives um, and occasionally we'd send each other, you know, shit posts on Twitter. But I, I messaged her out of the blue at, at sometime in the middle of this year and was like, hey, I vibed with you so much. I would love to just hang out with you and I think it would be fun to make a podcast And thankfully, she also vibed with me and she too thought it would be fun to make a podcast. And so as we were going through all the ideas of what we would want to do, because we're all wildly curious about different topics and different interests, and even though we're astrophysicists on a daily basis learning about physics, that. You know, we want to learn more, more than just physics. We both love things that are spooky and kooky and a little bit, you know, dark history, dark tourist type of vibes. And we were excited to just go down rabbit holes, starting on, you know, very innocuous pages and see what we could find that interested us. And so as we were starting this idea, she's like, hey, I have a best friend, Drew, who is literally the funniest person I've ever met. Would you like to meet him? And we'll see how it goes. And I was like, yes, absolutely, sure. So we all met on Discord. And I had tears in my eyes within the first five minutes of talking to Drew because he cracked me up so much. He's like a brother from another mother. We love Drew so much. And he fitted in with just our general kookiness so well. And that is how the podcast kind of began and since then we have had so much fun going over almost 40 different topics all weird wonderful from everything from nature to sci-fi to product placement which i never thought i would find interesting but thanks to drew i now do and we've had so much fun learning about where you guys what you guys find interesting and what you find on the internet as well and so i am so excited to recap some of my favorite things that have happened over this year and a lot of a lot of some of my favorite things are actually not in episodes so some of the greatest things that happen are actually when we're planning the episodes planning what the question of the week is planning what the topics are and it's the cryptic messages that we get from Lindsay about what her topic is going to be or what her answer to the question of the week is going to be that keeps me on my toes waiting to hear it when we're recording which is so much fun. And so without further ado, here are our favorite moments of the year. So one of my favorite moments that sticks in my head and makes me laugh every time I think about it. It wasn't even a topic from any of our episodes. It was just this random snippet in one episode where Lindsay (laughs) puts her foot in her mouth with her pronunciation of words. And so this topic is from episode seven called Ask Alice about carving a disguise against AI moles. It is a load of fun. We dive down the rabbit hole starting with Reese Witherspoon and we find all sorts of really fun topics. So I cover jack-o'-lanterns, Drew covers AI takeover and history Um, and sorry and Lindsay covers the history of whack so it's all over the shop lots of fun things that happen. And the clip we're about to play is a tidbit from when Lindsay randomly brings up Sonic the Hedgehog and his friend uh the Echidna and and yeah, we learn that even though I can't spell Lindsay can't pronounce and it it is a wild ride and so much fun and I don't know every every couple of days I think about Lindsay saying Echidna and I just giggle. So I hope you enjoy.
1: <laughs> and um, another bonus is that for some reason I have now ended up following a bunch of Sonic fans on Twitter and with the new release of the second Sonic movie there's been a lot of Knuckles trivia Knuckles mm-hmm. the Echidna and did you know that Knuckles the Echidna was originally <laughs> sorry, based sorry. off of Are
2: you saying the Echidna?
1: oh my god what do you say like
2: the Echidna?
0: The Echidna,
2: yes. Stop!
1: I know! <laughs> Wait, okay, other question, other question. How do you say Archipelago? Archipelago? archipelago. Fuck this. No, oh my god, it's Archipelago. <laughs> no, archipelago. it is not. I said it like that in middle school and no one stopped me. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> Well, I was well, I was shopping in the husky section. <laughs> <laughs> this world is going yeah, to shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what did
2: you find out about Knuckles the Echidna?
1: Knuckles the Echidna was originally originally created after the Rastafarian flag. Oh, really? Not? Yeah, and he was supposed to have a Jamaican accent. And then (laughs) according to this article, um, he is now of Mesoamerican descent.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
2: Do you you guys have echidnas? You have porcupines in America, don't you? I don't think we have
1: echidnas. I'm pretty sure an echidna
2: is a native animal to Australia. Do
1: We have echidnas... Oh, how do you spell I- echidna? I wouldn't know. Do we have echidnas? <laughs> in America. Clicky clack.
0: Clickety clack. Don't talk back.
1: <laughs> Spiny anteaters. I don't know. I can't find out immediately. Oh, echidnas live in Australia and New Guinea. So no, we don't. No, we do not.
2: And not <gasps> They're a monitor not- <laughs> Where did it... <laughs> Where did these guys get this <laughs> idea from? They were probably high. <laughs> Holy shit, they descend from the platypus. Yeah. And I think the echidna and the porcupine are examples of like the co covergent evolution on two different continents. <gasps> of something adapting um very similarly to to fight off different types of prey that try to bite it.
1: Oh, that is really cool.
2: Yeah, they're pretty cute. Damn. Wow, I've learned so
1: much before the show. Yeah. (laughs) There
2: you go. It's Sarah and I'm back again, this time to reminisce on my favorite topic. This one was an easy one for me because I just, I love it so much. It is from episode six, Ask Alice About Venomous Giant Squids with Socialist Agendas. And you can probably guess what my favorite topic was the giant squids. Anyone who knows me knows that I love things that are really, really big and really, really small that shouldn't be. So giant squids are just the pinnacle of of coolness, in my opinion. And Lindsay presents it in such a lovely way. And it's a wild ride. You'll never believe what happened to this poor, record-breaking giant squid. So I hope you enjoy.
1: Really put yourself there. So it's 1878. And, um, The person Sarah just talked about, whose name I can't pronounce, just died (laughs) in 1876. Um, The world is, like, up and coming. Like, we just kind of discovered the internal combustion engine or invented it or whatever. Like, the typewriter was discovered or not really
2: discovered. In the wilderness of America, (laughs) they found the typewriter
1: right somebody discovered a typewriter in the jungles of uh (laughs) um you know there's stuff that's like i'm pretty sure so bissell invents the first vacuum cleaner um in 1876 very important item Yep, the telephone, the first version of the telephone by Alexander Graham Bell also was invented in 1876. Moving pictures first came about, the phonograph, and we are a year before the light bulb is invented. So we're really on the cusp of all of this new technology. Um, Okay. And Thimble Tickle earns the Guinness World Record on a chilly November day. It's a very, very, very small, uh, like, fisherman's harbor sort of an area. In fact, when the area was mm-hmm. founded, it had about 67 people <laughs> living mm-hmm. oh, in wow. the settlement. And looking at, um, like, kind of a, a histogram of different uh, population sizes, sometimes as few as 11 people lived in Thimble Tickle. Today, it's closer wow. to about 92 people. So a very, very small fishing area. Little Do you harder. think they
2: are all related? <laughs>
1: like, I mean, at the time that there were eleven people, sure. You know, I
2: mean, <laughs> <laughs> probably one family.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a chilly November day on in 1878, and three men are out in a uh, fishing boat, and they realize that the waves start to get really, really rough. And we know from secondhand accounts of the day that the men saw something that they described as a devil fish. (laughs) In Hmm. fact, it is also known as the thimble tickle specimen.
0: Oh.
2: (laughs) Oh.
1: And I love that the Wikipedia article says it was so, so the direct quote is it was not far from the locality where the other devil fish was cast ashore and the name of this what, other this other devil fish is called the three arms specimen and at first I'm like holy <laughs> shit what has three arms like advanced legs or whatever the fuck
0: um, <laughs> modified legs modified <laughs> legs, modified legs.
2: <laughs> no it turns out
1: three arms was just another shitty name of a place <laughs> So both <laughs> Thimble Tickle and Three Arms are just the names of these fishing towns. Actually has nothing to do with the devilfish.
2: <clears throat> I'm kind of glad.
1: And so in this shallow water where the men are um, about to go fishing, they encounter a giant
2: squid. Oh my God, that's amazing.
1: Yes. So I love giant squids. At some point, a giant squid had come into too shallow water. And was thrashing around near the fishing boat. Oh, and yes. He was lost. You feel really bad. Exactly. But the guys on the boat, because remember, this is a fishing town are like, Oh shit. This is a massive fucking fish. Like this is great.
0: And we got to so feed
1: ourselves for 20 years. <laughs> so the world record is that this is the largest giant squid that has ever ever been seen by humans
2: oh my god wow and so
1: i'm putting you right back in the place of of the discovery 2nd of november 1878 this giant squid stuff of nightmares is thrashing around and it has these large glassy eyes and these massive suction cups that have a diameter of about 10 centimeters across like it is I would have thought it was like the Kraken coming to get them. It is enormous, Sarah. It measures fifty eight feet or sixteen meters long. Oh my god, that is a big squiddy boy. Bigger than the snake you ran over.
2: <laughs> it's huge. It's a massive squid. I would be terrified. Imagine how big its beak would be. Yes. Oh I know. And so No
1: the thing is like uh, churning the water and it's like thrashing all over the place. These arms are just so monumental that they are trying to dodge the the thrashing arms. There's black ink everywhere, and they say, "All right, we're fishermen, and like this is like some some huge some huge massive fish. Don't go anywhere." And so. <laughs> like,
2: just
1: wait right there they wait right there so they they're like you know hang on hang on so they they wrap it in rope and they're like okay don't swim away don't get away so they they tie the rope to a tree <laughs> <laughs> like like you would a dog so they tie they tie up the giant squid to a tree but then the tide oh, goes no. out <laughs> Oh, no. And so the squid dies because he was tied to a fucking tree.
0: (laughs) And the tide went out.
1: And so the people in the... (laughs) These
2: men would have been so confused.
1: And not only that, but like I said, this is a world record. There has never been a squid this large before. And instead of preserving the specimen or studying it, It was immediately cut up for dog food.
2: What? Dog food? (laughs) Dog food. They had premium calamari, and they used it for dog food. They had what could have been
1: one of the most scientific, like, important scientific discoveries, especially regarding giant squids, and it was immediately cut up for dog food.
2: I... I'm speechless.
1: <laughs> What's also kind of amazing is, you know, no pictures survive. And it's all kind of secondhand accounts of the people who were there. The, there there were three fishermen, like I said, two of them still remain unnamed. Like this was very poorly documented. And so it's also been a little bit controversial as to whether or not mm. this is the largest uh, giant squid. Like because there's scant Pixar evidence. didn't happen. Yeah, I mean. I think that they are sure that it happened, but part of the science or finesse of measuring a giant squid is actually a little bit involved. So there are parts mm-hmm. of the, um, the arms, I guess that are a little bit, uh, elastic-y. So Ooh. nobody knows if the parts of the squid were stretched all the way and then measured, or if they were left to relax and then, uh, yeah. measured. Mm-hmm. So, What's tricky is, they like nowadays we have enough data on giant squids that there's, uh, I think that there is speculated. I'm trying to, somewhere I had like a quote of like how many different species of giant squid people think that there are, so you know there is some diversity among them, Uh, but the idea is that the thimble tickle specimen was so big that people think that maybe it was incorrectly measured. And I love that in the Mm. Wikipedia article, one of the reasons that this could have been poorly measured is because at the time people just counted paces. (laughs) 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 They just walked next to it. You might have
2: just had someone with really tiny feet walking next to the giant (laughs) squid.
1: Or they're like, you know, I sang Mary Had a Little Lamb three times while I walked (laughs) along the side. So, um, there is some controversy, but if you go to Thimble Tickle today, there is a replica of the giant squid and just looking at pictures of the statue, you can really start to understand just what it would have been like to be in like a tiny little boat next to the damn thing. It is huge.
2: My final throwback for this episode is the most surprising topic I found throughout all of our recordings this year. And it goes to Drew for his topic of D&D mimics. Uh, in folklore and I thought this was awesome. So not only do I play D D and have come across a couple of different minute mimics, um, I loved that this was rooted in ancient folklore and uh, other, other things that happen in nature, um, and I think it's really fascinating. And so if you want to learn all about it apart from this clip and hear the rest of what we had to say, you can go listen to episode three, uh, Ask Alice About Mimicking the Lane Ghost to Curse Your Lover. It's a great title and I promise it's a great episode and just a little hint of why I love this clip so bloody much is because we talk about D&D, Ted Bundy and fish becoming testes all within like a minute of each other. So it's a wild ride and it's fantastic. I hope you enjoy.
0: So uh, the idea of a mimic itself, like the the creature itself is is from the 1977 Dungeons and Dragons, but let's get into where it actually comes from, because that's where I got okay, to. Cool. So, um, So let's I, let's start with the idea of nature, or not the idea of nature. <laughs> let's start with another, another <laughs> nature, what a concept. The idea of nature. <laughs> okay, so let's start with nature, yeah. as this idea is as old as the predator and prey dynamic. So this type of mimicry is called aggressive mimicry, which is also compared to the story of a wolf in sheep's clothing, which we'll get to later. But basically the idea is to present oneself as something innocuous in order to have the mm. prey let its guard down and then attack, of right. course. This is
2: like Ted Bundy. Yeah. Oh, my
0: God. <laughs> <laughs> Disguising oneself as a normal human. Yeah, there you go.
2: Yes. Pretending. Like, what did he used to do? He used to wear a fake cast to, to look vulnerable.
0: Oh, He's that's... just a mimic
2: in real life.
0: He's a mimic in real life. I don't like that. Oh. No. need neither. Me
2: Good riddance.
0: Yeah, good riddance. Um, <laughs> so this is, of course, a scene throughout the natural world as, you know, a predator can't simply just walk up to prey without having some kind of ploy. So, um, <laughs> yeah, let me just put you in my stomach, you know. There's no, there has to be something that, the, prey, that the, the predator does. So I'm sure we can all think of examples, but here are a few of my favorites. So um, okay. anglerfish and alligator snapping turtles oh. both use little lures. Yes! So,
2: anglerfish so incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: they're, they're weird. They're so weird. Their whole mating thing okay. is so weird too. i are not
2: going to talk about Yeah, Yay! The little, the male anglerfish like fuses himself to become like a bag of testes on the side of the female. Whoa. Yeah. Yep. 100%. It's wild. That's, that's
0: anglerfish mating.
2: I love it. And I love They're it. weird little creepies.
0: It could even do it with more than one male. So it could just have like a okay. bunch of just, just... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, but that's mating, and we're talking about eating. Yeah. So <laughs> anglerfish and alligator snapping turtles both have little lures that they put out that, you know, a little fish is like, oh, great, this this is like a little fish that I can eat, and then just, like, finds jaws at the end of it. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a form of aggressive mimicry. Then there's venus flytraps use brightly colored leaves to pretend yes. to be flowers to attract insects. So, you know, flowers are very brightly colored, so venus flytraps leave the inside of their you know, quote-unquote mouths to be very colored. And then, you know, flies are like, oh, this is great. And then, you know, the, uh, the fly trap closes and, you know, that's history. <laughs> so finally, finally we get back to my boys, the cleaning fish.
2: Yeah, I so love there the are the cleaning f- fish. Oh, from last time.
0: There are fake cleaning fish that oh. look exactly like the regular oh. cleaning fish, but instead take huge bites out of the, the host fish oh. that's being cleaned and then flees before the host fish can figure out what happened. So it ruins the whole relationship of host of, of host and cleaning fish because it just like bites the host fish and just like I'm out and then the host asshole. fish is like, what the hell just happened? Yeah, right. Oh, that's so that's sad. So He's
1: rude. like, I'll never trust again.
0: I'll never trust again. I'm never coming back here. <laughs> oh yeah, so that's uh that's that's it in nature. And those are a few of my favorite examples. Um so now let's move on to folklore. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned before, the story of wolf in sheep's clothing is often used to equate to aggressive mimicry. And this story roots in biblical writings, in which Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, described being aware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves, or raving wolves, sorry. I don't know, ravening wolves. I don't
2: know God. why. I thought you were going to tell me that Jesus dressed up in, like, sheep's clothing <laughs> <laughs> or <something like> that. <laughs>
1: Jesus to get more followers. (laughs) Uh, Sorry.
0: No, no, it's fine. I just I have an image of Jesus in like a sheep, and he's just like beware of sheep. Yeah,
2: Yeah, like I don't know why I can picture him with like a sheep carcass over over his shoulders. Oh Jesus, trying to blend in. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Sorry, please continue.
0: Uh, enough blasphemy for, the, for us. <laughs> it's
2: enough for one day.
0: Enough for one day. So the first fable concerning a wolf disguising itself as sheep came to us in the 12th century by the Greek writer, here we go, Nicophorus Basilakis. What name. Uh, in, in his work called Minismata, which is Rhetorical Exercises. <laughs> And basically the story goes that a wolf takes to the disguise of a sheep and is locked in with the sheep during the night, but is killed by the shepherd when the shepherd wants to have sheep for supper. So basically the shepherd finds the wolf just sitting in the the pen and is just like, what are you doing here? And just stabs it. So, <laughs> and <laughs> that's, that's the story. Um, so there are quite a few other variations of the story of wolves in sheep's clothing uh, throughout history. And it's just like this idea of a dangerous creature disguising itself as something innocuous is just seen throughout historical writings which i found very very interesting and that was kind of like what i i would call the basis of a mimic is is that um but now let's actually get into monsters in folklore my favorite part so in medieval folklore there's an animal called a mimic dog which is a wild dog that could perfectly mimic human speech, behavior, and motions. I
2: want it as a pet. <laughs>
0: yeah, right? <laughs> um, so these dogs ended up being fun dogs to have in courts and are not inherently dangerous, but other creatures, such as the Krokata, which is another medieval creature, could mimic human cries for help in order to lure people close enough to be eaten. Now, now let's move to Slavic mythology. So there's the concept of the leshi. So these creatures usually appear as tall men, but have the ability to change their size and shapeshift into any form, plant, or animal, and can even shrink to the size of a blade of grass or grow to the size of a tree. It is commonly understood, and I, this, is, this is from a, an article, commonly understood that leshies will lead peasants astray, make people sick, and even tickle them to death. And yes, I said tickle them to death. Oh no. So these creatures... <laughs> you mean tickled to death?
1: I get very serious when I'm tickled. I'm like, do not fucking touch me. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: So these creatures are terribly mischievous and have horrible cries. However, leshies can also imitate human voices and oftentimes lure lost wanderers into their caves to be tickled to death. (laughs) Which I find (laughs) so funny. uh they aren't always evil but do enjoy misguiding humans and kidnapping young women so there you go there's there's leshies or or (laughs) they aren't always evil they're not always evil but they love kidnapping young women Ha! you thought you could get away without hearing me again but you can't you can't get away i'm always here i'm always here but (laughs) anyway if you want to hang out with us further you can go to twitter which is go ask alice pod or you can hang out with us on Instagram or TikTok on Go S. Alice Podcast. And uh, Lindsay and Sarah do a great job of manning those two things. And they, uh, they post some really, really great content. So if you ever want to hang out with us more, you can go to either of those two. Either of those three. Any of those three. That's the word for it. Anyway, um, we love you, Robin. And uh, hopefully you join us in the future of 2022. And we're going to make a ton more episodes. So enjoy them. Bye-bye. But baby, there's a horse outside.